0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's bright and early on the West Coast on Monday morning, October the 23rd, 2023. I wish I could bring you some good news, but there isn't much, at least judging from the front page of... The world's newspapers the war uh, in gaza is intensifying creating all sorts of terrible personal tragedies and doesn't seem to be going anywhere except becoming worse and worse meanwhile there's another war that seems to be going on a war of words over this particular war in the united states one of the other headlines from the new york times this morning is that LinkedIn, one of the social networks that's rarely in the headlines and, and, and particularly uncontroversial, <laughs> has given a warning to us to one site that is in the business of shaming pro-Palestinian sentiment. And this war of words is really interesting. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, uh, Harvard, as so often, has become the the center of the debate. Uh, Harvard students have been doxxed by Uh, conservative uh, organizations. Uh, Some law firms are rescinding job offers for students who have articulated their support of the Palestinian cause. And meanwhile, this really struck home for me, Paddy Cosgrave, who I wouldn't say is a friend of mine, but I've known him for many years. I've been to the Web Summit for many years. I've spoken at it. He had to step down. Web Summit is uh, a 70,000 person strong conference held annually in portugal the biggest tech conference of the world he had to step down over remarks suggesting that we needed to treat so at least in in, in paddy's words uh, crimes against humanity of the israelis in the same way as hamas so one man who knows who is all too familiar with these controversies Uh, the war of words rather than the war of military organizations is my guest today. Greg Lukianoff um, is the CEO and president of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, otherwise known as FIRE. And he is the co-author of a hit new book, The Cancelling of the American Mind, which he wrote with Ricky Schlott. Ricky was on the show last week. Uh, Greg is joining us from Washington, D.C. Greg... What do you make of this, these this war of words over over the the Israel Gaza Palestine Hamas war? Um, I, I'm guessing it hasn't really surprised you. It's probably probably no. pretty much confirmed what you've been warning about in the book.
1: No, no, it, uh, it, it, I, I wish it were more surprising. Um, I landed at nine ten a.m. on 9 11 um, to look for my apartment um, when I started my job at FIRE, when I became the first legal director. So, my very first cases were people who said, um, you know, make crack jokes about the attacks, or for that matter, uh, said that, uh, you know, likened, there was one professor who's got kind of famous, Ward Churchill, who likened the victims of the attack to little Eichmanns. Um, There are also professors and students who got in trouble for saying, you know, get those bastards um, by putting up the San Francisco Chronicle, um, uh, the front page that actually showed the towers blowing up and just said bastards on top of it. Um, So those were my very first cases. And that's actually kind of the more normal situation in which uh, what I call mass censorship events happen, is there's some kind of external threat, uh, people freak out and suddenly people are losing their jobs uh, for their opinion Um, at the time we saw maybe about 17 cases of of, of attempts to get professors fired Um, the student number is larger but we we don't have good research going all that way back maybe like a dozen in addition to that i will say um that there were in some ways it was and my very first time on tv by the way was defending samuel arian for saying death to israel he um uh he had actually said it back in the eighties, uh, but he was eventually fired for ties to actual um, Muslim Brotherhood and terrorist organizations. Uh, Ward Churchill was ended up being fired for academic misconduct, which was for real. Um, so even though it was a scary period, um, in the end, uh, it, I think it led to a, a a increase in appreciation for academic freedom and free speech. But it does create this very almost cynical kind of um, uh, dynamic where universities always circle the wagons when they think the threat is coming from outside, when, when they think it's, uh, you know, it, what the government, so for example, like fire came out and condemned uh, people in Congress saying they're going to defund um, uh, Harvard for, uh, for the opinions of its students, and that's, that, they can't do that anyway, that, that violates the first amendment, you know, came out and said that. But suddenly universities seem to be talking a good game on academic freedom and free speech. And it's like, yes, that's always what happens when they think the threat is from outside. When there are students and professors on campus demanding that professors be punished, that's an entirely different story. So to me, that's going to be the real test of if Harvard suddenly found, you know, uh, care about academic freedom and free speech actually means anything. It's going to be when the, you know, the calls for censorship come from inside the house.
0: One of the interesting things about the Cosgrave story is that his critics, they tend to be uh, executives at tech companies. They're not saying that Cosgrave doesn't have the right to say whatever he likes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What they're doing and what what they have done is withdrew drawn their support for Web Summit, which resulted in in Cosgrave essentially being forced to fire himself as the CEO of President, even if he's the majority owner of the company. In terms of the market, do execs have the right, Greg, if they choose to find what uh, Paddy Gosgrave said about uh, the Palestinians, distasteful? Do, do do commercial companies have the right to simply say, we don't want to do business with you? It's different from saying that he doesn't have the right to say what he wants, isn't it? mm mm-hmm.
1: Well, and this is something that we try to really, and I try to make this clear all the time. There's a distinction between First Amendment law and some of the habits of a healthy sort of free speech culture. Um, From a First Amendment perspective, um, do all of these, you know, executives have every right in the world to, to say that they don't want to associate with them? Of course they do. What we're trying to make an argument for in Canceling the American Mind is a little bit more of a thumb on the scale of it's important to know what people really think. Um, everyone's entitled to their opinion, et cetera, et cetera. Um, things like um, to each their own, not my cup of tea. All of these, I, I'm using old-fashioned idioms to make the point that America already had some ideas of what a free speech culture looked like. Certainly when I was a kid, it's a free country. Everyone's entitled to their opinion were things that got repeated so often that you were there were cliches, but they also were... Cliches because we could consider them to be true. So I do think that we've gone too far in the cultural direction of if you have an opinion I don't like, keep it, keep it entirely to yourself in a way that I think is actually unhealthy. Well, one of the things we're trying to do in the book is get us a little bit more, uh, you know, hopefully much more, back to the idea of, you know, actually it's valuable to know what 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 you think. I disagree with it passionately, but we can still actually have, you know, constructive dialogue about other things.
0: Greg, do you, uh, and this was something I, I talked to about um, Ricky, uh, and I'm not sure she entirely convinced me. Do you think, for for better or worse, your argument? And I'm actually talking to Yasha Monk after you today. Oh, great! Sorry, Yasha, for me. They've become vehicles of conservatives. I'm not suggesting that you're a conservative. I understand that you you've you've uh, at FIRE and personally, you've supported the right of both the left and the right, pro-Israel, pro-Palestine, pro this, pro that. But do you feel that in the current cultural and political climate in America, for better or worse, your argument becomes a vehicle for the right?
1: Well, this is, uh, this is interesting because this is a point that we make in the book. Um, we have figured out, and I particularly, you know, when I lived, when I was at Stanford and I was working at the ACLU um, as an intern, I definitely found, um, and I'm I'm, I'm sure you disagree on this, but I found the environment for meaty debate and discussion was not nearly as healthy as I was used to in where I currently live, Washington, DC. And I felt like there were a lot of roadblocks that people would put up um, to interfere with actually having a healthy discussion about ideas um, rather than people. And uh, restriction number one is if I could find you, if I can make the argument that you're a conservative or that your argument's conservative, or that it's helpful to conservatives, I don't have to listen to you anymore. And this is something they were doing at Stanford in 97. And that I, by the way, being someone who's on the left myself and worked at the ACLU and all that stuff, was a sucker for. That essentially, it was like refuting someone to show that they're Conservative, like it was, and that means you didn't have to read them or take them seriously. And I was such a sucker for this. I never read Thomas Sowell, um, who is is a conservative, but he's very thoughtful, and and his whole approach to uh, examining. America is to take an international point of view and do sort of comparative, like what what do these problems look like in other countries? Which is you know, my father's, you know, Russian by way of Yugoslavia. My mother's Irish. Spent a lot of time there, which is exactly I think the way you should do it. And then even people like Camille Paglia. Um, the uh, I was told assured that she's some crazy right winger when actually you know she's hard to really pin down exactly like what what you think of her politics. So I think the argument that that um, this should be not taken as seriously, or, or sort of like the, the, the delaying tactic, more or less of like, well, this is what conservatives are saying. I just can't, I don't have time for that anymore. They're going to accuse me of being right-wing and uh, that's fine because it doesn't actually mean anything as to the truth of my arguments. And I think that if we allow, and, and the conservative one, by the way, has been so badly abused that in the past year, you actually see people accusing the ACLU of being right-wing, the New York Times of being right-wing, and why would something like that happen? because it's worked all the time before to, as we put in the book, win arguments without actually winning arguments.
0: We are speaking with uh, Greg Lukianov, um, who is a distinguished First first, uh, first Amendment lawyer. Greg, do you object to that, being called a First Amendment expert, Mr. First Amendment?
1: I, I, I am. Um, that's what I specialized in law school. I took every class that Stanford yeah, I, offered on it. How can I'm I insult polite. you? What, what do you object to be calling? What do I object to being called? Uh, mean names?
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> like, what, yeah, I mean, maybe I shouldn't ask this because I, I need to figure it out for myself. But
1: what insults you? What upsets what, you? What 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 upsets me? That's a good question. I mean, I I am th- actually a relatively sensitive person, Andrew the um I actually got very depressed and anxious writing mm. this book. What led me on the path to writing coddling the American mind was I was hospitalized as a danger to myself uh, of, of killing myself um i this is not easy for me um and I don't sometimes think I'm an emotionally cut out for it Right, so, and uh, just a, to
0: remind everyone, you also the co-author of uh, with Jonathan Haidt of the Cuddling of the American Coddling Mind. The American. He pronounces it height, by the way. Hate he height. Jonathan height. Uh, he's yeah, not like, hate. He's the opposite of hate. Height. Uh, yeah. Jonathan Haidt. Yeah. Haidt. The Cuddling of the American Mind, which is in many ways is volume one of, of this book. Um, yeah. So sorry, I interrupted
1: you. So what I, what I'm saying is, I, I'm actually a pretty sensitive person overall, um, but my own sense of what offends me and this is the bedrock principle um, of uh and it's something that i actually very much differ from my mother's country britain uh on uh is that the bedrock principle of the first amendment is that you can't ban something simply because it's subjectively offensive and one of the reasons why um is because that's too subjective in a genuinely multicultural society you get that very quickly like growing up in a neighborhood with Vietnamese kids, Korean kids, Puerto Rican kids, people from the American South, people—you know—all basically relatively poor people. But like the the, um, that that essentially there is uh, no agreement on what is offensive, and therefore it makes immediate sense from a a point of view of diversity that trying to police things because they're offensive is is not going to work, and it's going to lead to arbitrary exercise of the power. I still think sometimes Europe suffers from the fact that there is an idea that there's a modal Brit. There's a middle, there, there, there's a John Bull somewhere out there who actually, he's offended to things and we're all this people, so therefore that can't be said. America's never had that. We've always understood that people from Boston, Richmond, Georgia, Maine, you know California, all have very different norms. So offensiveness, I think is just too subjective of a standard and it's too ripe for abuse. And by the way, it will be um, used by those in power um, and those closest to power the most.
0: We're speaking with Greg Lukianov, the co author of The Closing, not The Closing, The Canceling. I'm getting, of course, there was a Closing of the American Mind, which was the original version of this best selling book by Alan Bloom, another conservative book that perhaps isn't quite as conservative as it first seems. But um, Greg's book, which he co wrote with Ricky Schlott, is The Canceling of the American Mind. Um, Greg, when I talked to um, to Ricky, your co author, I said, "Well, this all sounds very theoretical. All this outrage within universities. University people are always outraged. That's what being in the university is." But give me some examples of why this really matters. And she gave the Mark Adams example um, of uh, a a man uh, within the university who um, who. Uh, ultimately committed suicide. Do you agree with Ricky? Is, is is Adam's exhibit one in proof of your argument of its importance rather than just its bubbliness, it's its noisiness? Andrew, can I I listened to the interview with Ricky. Can I can I ask you a personal question? Of course. Did you read the book? I did not read it as much as you would want. It's I've very, read a lot of it's reviews. It's very
1: clear you did not read the book.
0: Well c- explain...
1: What what I would have learned had I read the book that there is a ton of data in it um, for one thing uh, that there are many many examples that we cite everyone from what well, we we you know uh, we we show how you know authority agrees on this we uh, cite a ton of data we give um, we sh- I wanted to write a sixty thousand word book and we couldn't um, I, I we ended up having to write a hundred thousand word book because there were too many examples. Mm. Now the example of Mike Adams is very close to my heart because I he was remember I I said those cases
0: yeah and I and, um, and I I was intrigued by that myself I just read the the piece on you in Politico so I don't want to seem too unprepared I, I do read around books but because I'm doing three or four interviews a day it's hard for me to read three or four books a day
1: no no un- understood um the uh, two thousand so in two thousand one remember those cases I was talking about about eleven yeah. One of the very first professors I defended was a professor who got who got mad at a student for writing the entire campus, it was a campus listserv, saying America had it coming. Um, and that we this was totally on us. We 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 deserve the attacks. And he wrote back something to the effect of, um, you know what? I think uh, this is you know, First Amendment protected. But just as you know, um, bigoted and simple-minded speech uh, is protected, so is this. Like so, he 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 mocked what the student had to say. You know, while the literally while, while the uh, while the you know it was still smoldering um, at crown Zero, and 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 that's where it, when, when I started. So they launched an investigation of the professor, and there's there's no question from a, from a legal standpoint, and this is a public college, that this was protected speech. And so I was really mad that they launched an investigation of him. Um, he credited me with being the person who introduced him to the work of, um, of, of comedian Lenny Bruce. Uh, and he would credit me for saying, this is how I got my sort of in-your-face kind of conservative style from this point on. Um, and he would write kind of jokey pieces, making fun of the left all the time, um, you know, very much like in the spirit of things that people, you know, write about the right on campus all the time. Uh, I think Ricky mentioned that he had a great victory in court that actually was a major victory for academic freedom for the entire country, um, and he published something. Uh, he he sent out a tweet joking um, that uh, I, I think he 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 addressed the governor, and he finished it with, uh, Massa governor let my people go, and what he was referring to was um, the lockdowns. And then there was a campaign to get rid of him. People started coming to his house. They started calling his phone. Um, and he uh, he was um, uh, he, he was able to get a severance package from the school, which people thought was outrageous. But I have to remind you, he won a lawsuit already against UNCW, so of course they gave him the severance. I checked in with him in mid July. Of twenty uh, of twenty twenty, because I actually thought he was of all the. We had a huge flood of professors asking for our help in twenty twenty. There was a massive sort of like post George Floyd attempt to honestly get people in trouble for things that they posted years ago, get people disinvited, you know, get, get their acceptance to Harvard r- removed because of things they said in high school, for example. Like it was really an like a, a, an ugly time. I thought Mike was the person who could handle it the most. And he, uh, he, I checked in with him, he was doing a lot worse than I thought, uh, but it was too late really for me to do much because he'd already signed the severance package and he killed himself the next week. And one of the things that I am trying to say in the book is that there's a real psychological toll uh, to, uh, the, 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 to cancel culture. However, I do think that for skeptics, I think some of the most important things to understand the data. Um, so like I said, there were about three maybe firings that took place after 9-11 um though uh and about 17 attempts to get professors fired in this and that those were bad years to be very clear <laughs> which people don't get like the numbers of pro- like how many professors have to be fired for it to be con- considered a scandal um what in the world of academic freedom is one uh, the american association of university professors did an entire issue on the firing of steven Salida, for example a case we were involved with and we defended um we're talking about you know a thousand known attempts to get professors uh, punished in some way, if, if not fired. Uh, two thirds of them resulted in some kind of punishment. Um, uh, almost two hundred of them, or we're probably going to exceed two hundred this year, uh, got resulted in them getting fired or forced out. I think around forty percent of those are tenured. A single tenured professor getting fired was a big deal. And we also, by the way, know that this is a huge undercount. Um, one in six. Professors say that they have been threatened with investigation or investigated uh, it, it, in recent years for their academic freedom. One third of them said that they uh, that they've been told by administrators or their colleagues not to approach controversial research. Um, and when uh, one thing that we do try to do is like one of the reasons why we refer back to the Red Scare. is The Red Scare uh, was truly horrifying, um, and it was. A, but it was a period before the law was even established in the United States. It was only Are the you? Uh, States. Uh, I, I take
0: your point, um, but. One of the areas I'm not sure I agreed with Ricky. is She did compare it to the Red Scare, to the to the to the years of of Senator McCarthy. Do you agree with that? Are they equivalent?
1: Equivalent is not the right word. Are they? Com- well, what are word they would you com- use? Comparable. Um, and and in terms of, because the Red Scare was during a time of actual national security crisis. There were actually British and American spies who were, had given, you know, what what my Russian people call Super Hitler the bomb so there was a reason to be freaked out it was also by the way it happened before 1957 it wasn't clear you couldn't fire communists before 1957 basically the argument was these guys are too doctrinaire um, and that was a justification given now ricky was giving the the, the commonly agreed upon number which is usually about a hundred um, but really at the time what the investigation showed that there were about 62 or 63 professors fired for uh, for being communist, about 90 for opinion overall, which is usually rounded up to 100. I think with decades of being able to look into it, we're probably closer to 100 or 150. But we're in cancel culture right now, and we're already talking about 200 firings. Um, so the. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you know, indicating that there's a huge one, number of ones we haven't seen, with one in six professors saying they've been investigated. And of course, you can't pull professors who have been mm-hmm. fired to see if they've that, that they've been fired. So, in terms of seriousness, um, it in terms of numbers of professors fired it is actually it, it's it's helpful because like when people claim that two hundred is like not a big number, I'm like, so you think every single moment in American censorship history is not a big deal. Because when you look at the Sedition Act of, of 1798, which which is kind of like the one that First Amendment people come back to all the time, that um, we thought for years that involved about a dozen professors, uh, sorry, a, a dozen citizens getting prosecuted. Um, we now know that it's probably closer to 50, but that's in the entire country. Even when you go back to the Palmer Raids, which was the first Red Scare, which was, which was uh, uh, 1919 to uh, 1921, you know, that, that, that those numbers are in the thousands of people arrested, but it's not as many people who were arrested in uh, Britain for offensive comments on online as I think in just in the, in the year 2016 alone. So something big is happening. And I'm and, and it is. But is, it, is there,
0: I, You know, I take your point, but is it I wonder whether a lot of it has to do with a, a broader cultural and economic crisis within universities themselves. And it's a piece of mm-hmm. this because it. Whilst of course, I, you know, the, the Paddy Cosgrave thing, I guess is relevant, it's not a university um, controversy, but this is mostly taking place within universities. So for most people, they're pretty much shielded. They
1: don't really experience it. It's
0: oh, no, all in my no, room.
1: No, 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 um, no. We, 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 we deal with it in every, uh, we deal with it in a variety of industries. We could, you know, we tried to write this in a year. So we were limited to publishing journalism. We, we do have a chapter on comedy. That's the one non-knowledge producing industry. And we give examples from all of those but one thing that we, we i really want people to understand is that cancel culture particularly in academia affects you whether you know it or not because it undermines trust trust and expertise so t- to give an example that's not mike adams carol hooven she is an evolutionary psychologist um at harvard or she was um she wrote a book called testosterone it's a book about uh it, it, it it's a book about testosterone she did an interview where she said, we should be um, compassionate to trans people. We should use their pronouns. We should be as understanding as we can be. But biological sex is real, and we have to take it seriously. And we can't, as scientists, ignore it. There was immediately a DEI administrator at Harvard, who are often involved in these things, like you know, uh, talking about how outrageous this was and transphobic. There was immediately um, a, uh, a campaign by students, uh, usually encouraged by administrators, just to be clear, um, to uh, you know, get her punished in some way. I don't know if they actually specifically said fired, but they uh, most of the time they actually do specifically say that she was you know, abandoned by friends. She actually was another person who will admit to actually getting thinking of suicide for the first time in her life. She dropped out of, of Harvard. She came back for a little bit to work for Steve Pinker, and then she you know dropped out again. Now that's really sad for her. But what does that do when the public sees it? When the public sees. Um, when when an expert comes out and says biological sex, in fact, is not real or, or it's much more complicated um, th- th- than than binary, why should the public trust you if they know of even one case where one of uh, one of the most illustrious uh, institutions in the country saying the other thing actually got you canceled, got ruined your life, ruined your career, and and that's if it happens only once. In the book, we talk about this happening on every hot button issue in the United States. And so there was a survey that came out saying that American trust in higher education has, has plummeted. And, um, and I, Tom Nichols at the Atlantic like wrote kind of like, oh, it's just because of a right-wing conspiracy against higher ed. I'm like, dude, I've been doing this 22 years. I've never seen it this bad. And if you think higher education hasn't done a lot to undermine its own credibility, you haven't been paying attention.
0: It's an interesting argument from Greg Lucchiano, the co-author of The Canceling of the American Mind. One of the things that occurs to me is, you know, if you don't like Harvard, go and teach somewhere else or do something else. Certainly, I'm not convinced that this is happening in media. One of our sponsors is Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics um, uh, edited by my old friend Leon uh, Weaseltier, another controversial figure. He got pushed out of one magazine so he started his own they're a sponsor of the show we're going to run and i think it's excellent and agree with everything that leon says and i'm sure he doesn't agree with everything i says but we are in the trenches together probably with greg uh, Lukianov. Uh, i'm going to run a short ad for uh, for liberties and then i want to come back with greg and, and have the final segment talking about what we're going to do how we're going to fix or uncancel the american mind so don't go away anyone. And you can subscribe to at libertiesjournal.com. There seems to be a certain hysteria about this. Of course, uh, America is also associated with historical movements of one kind or another. Um, but Greg's new book, um, we're talking with Greg Lukianov, the co author of The Canceling of the American Mind, um, does raise, in what, in his view, is a very serious problem of c- can- uh, cancel culture. Uh, but he does say at the end there is a solution. Did the publisher force you to put that bit in, um, Greg, or, or or do you really believe this thing can be
1: fixed? I believe it can be fixed, but it's not easy. And that's one of the reasons why we spend a third of the book. Uh, and the first thing we need is to recognize there's a problem, which we think we prove, um, but still there, there's a tremendous, you know, there's uh, there are tremendous forces um, and lazy intellectual habits kind of uh, as ways uh, to just can i interrupt here because
0: right? i, yes. I usually don't defend myself because i it's not my business i mean it's my show but this is not about mm-hmm. me uh no, but-, but i I, agree, I i don't want to dismiss your argument entirely i think there is an i i certainly think it's a problem it is an issue but mm-hmm. i i i don't believe that it has the historical seriousness say of, of the McCarthy years but so so I put myself on but that record. means I don't, don't know about that, him, uh, there's a problem here but well, go we're on. You're
1: talking about three times as many professors fired then so what's your point please explain that
0: I'm always wary Greg when people hide behind data I mean I'd have to hide respond.
1: behind data Hide behind data. That's your argument.
0: Are you saying then that the only reason why this is more serious is because there are more victims or what you would call victims, some of these people might be for real, by the way, um, victims of cancel culture than there were of McCarthyism?
1: I'm, I'm saying that the only historical things that we have parallels to it involve fewer professors getting canceled. So if you think there's ever been a threat to academic freedom in American history, This is easily, they're going to be studying it in 50 to 100 years.
0: There there aren't, you know, public events where these people are being shamed in front of Congress. But but, but maybe there's another, maybe you'll come back on the show and we can talk more specifically. Let's talk about, because we've
1: only got 15 minutes left. Let's talk about fixes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I already um, talked about the idea of some of the norms that I think are helpful, you know, Uh, certainly to each their own, you know, the idioms, you know, are things that I think would be, helpful if we had those you know, back in American society. I definitely think, and this isn't as much in the book, but if, if America had more opportunities from people from different regions and different economic classes to actually get to meet each other, um, I think that would actually help a lot. I think that a lot of what's happening is the result of lack of physical proximity uh, to each other and a lot of, and very little communication across lines of, of class. Certainly, um, a lot of uh, very little communication uh, across lines of politics. And that's partially because where we live in the United States now tends to be both. I mean, you know, it was very interesting living in Brooklyn, where I lived in a, uh, a neighborhood that used to be an old <laughs> Italian working class neighborhood and yeah. became very, very much a uh, um, a, a upper class. Um, the uh, People's um, Republic of Brooklyn. Yeah. And, and people didn't you know have dialogue across those lines. So as far as things that can be done, I think that for one thing, we would be a lot healthier if there were ways that people could show that they were smart and hardworking um, beyond um, uh, some of the elite higher higher ed. Now, I don't need proof that, that that's true. I definitely, when I got to a place like Stanford, I couldn't believe how weird it was that suddenly people were treating me like I was a legit human being, you know, <laughs> like but essentially like suddenly I'm smart and I'm kind of like, wait a second, I'm sorry. I grew up with a lot of really brilliant people who, you know, are auto mechanics. Um, like this is, th- 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 this is disturbing. I think we'd be a lot healthier of a country though, if Silicon Valley, um, if Goldman Sachs, if a lot of these big companies and a lot of these big universities drew more from places that were Less elite. I think we need some pretty dramatic rethinking of how we do K through twelve. Um, currently, my my kids are in public school, you know, over over here in DC. And I think that the uh, constructive listening is very important to learn, and also being able to to take the other side of an argument um, is a great way to start learning that um, not everyone who disagrees with you is stupid or evil which which i think we've actually badly fallen into part partly out of you know lack of exposure to each other so we talk about parenting in the book we talk about k-12 reform we talk about what corporations can do to have less of these problems um, uh, and we talk about you know higher ed uh reform and i think there's lots to be done and interestingly by the way i think a lot of things that could actually improve the environment for freedom of speech and due process um in higher ed also uh, are things that would lower cost, which has been, you know, uh, out of control over the past couple decades.
0: You don't sound particularly convinced, I have to say, Oh, that, that it's easily fixed, you mean? Well, not easily fixed, but fixed at all. I always, and this is not, again, not a very funny joke. I always say when people start talking about Big problems being fixed by education, it usually means that they're just punting, they're throwing a Hail Mary, that they actually have no idea of how to fix this thing. But this because is the problem. Coming from education. So
1: overburdened. Yeah. But this is the problem coming from education. So so like the, the idea that, that, that education institutes wouldn't is have it, a
0: role no, in it. Uh, is it, Greg? Is uh you know, you talk about the fragility and how seriously everyone takes one another. Is it coming from the culture, from the education, from the family, or from all three, or from everything.
1: Uh, it, it's coming largely from education. Um, the I, I'd say K through 12 plus elite colleges are one of the are among some of the problems, but also non-elite colleges as well. Because remember, these can't be divorced from each other because K through 12 is dominated by graduates of of, of education uh, schools, and education schools have pretty you know, they, 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 people, even leaders in education schools have been picking on re- education schools for being too groupthinky and too ideologically rigid, you know, going back decades, even the 1960s, but even as recently as you know, two decades ago, um, that these are problems largely created by education. It's not that we wouldn't have some version of, of polarization or, or some of these issues without education, but certainly education rather than tamping some of this stuff down is accelerating it like crazy. Some
0: people believe that AI will deepen the problem. Some people see it as a solution. What do you think?
1: I don't know. Um, that That's one of those ones I, I think a fair amount about. I think the problem is that with AI being, you know, programmed to a large degree uh, by, some of the people who graduated from colleges, we might actually be dub- doubling down um, on some of the existing biases we, we, we already have. So, I, I, you know, as I'm saying, and I'm saying, we can't rely on, on AI to, to save us. There are ways it could be helpful, but it could also make things worse it's about as perceptive as I can be on that one.
0: And what about just, and I know this is a, a very general remark to um, being a little bit more sensitive. You, you bring up Adams and of course his, his own narrative was, 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 was very tragic, but he made jokes about slavery. I mean, at, at what point do we need to self-censor here and simply understand that you can't really make jokes about slavery or the Holocaust uh, or, or other subjects that
1: get to the very core of people's identity? Because I think that there's a value in knowing what people really think. I'm not a free speech absolutist because that doesn't exist, but I am an opinion absolutist, um, that essentially it's valuable to know what people really think stop and i think that if we're particularly if we're engaged in trying to figure out what is true and what is real which is one of the most important things you can engage in it can't be a place that has limitations just on the idea that things are offensive now there are such things as racial and sexual harassment but those have definitions and they're and they're generally considered in the law to be patterns of discriminatory behavior not mere expression of opinion and when they are actually Uh, when they are actually interpreted as mere expression of opinion, they run afoul of the First Amendment, and appropriately so. Do we need a new law, maybe a Lenny
0: Bruce law? You mentioned that um, Adams fancied himself as as Lenny Bruce. (laughs) He's no longer around to know one way or the other. Certainly when you hear jokes, some jokes, supposed quote-unquote jokes on the right about the Holocaust, for example, jokes about gassing, people say, well, we're only joking, have a sense of humor. Do you think we need a Lenny Bruce rule that suggests that Humor requires other people to actually laugh and that there aren't many, 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 there are many called, but very few chosen in terms of comedians like Lenny Bruce, who, who successfully offend and at the same time, uh, credibly make an interesting point.
1: I'm thinking about the interview I'm doing tonight with Nick Gillespie, um, who, who's a editor at Reason Magazine and probably one of the finest I've ever met. Um, and he, he, he would take issue with the idea that Lenny Bruce was funny, (laughs) <laughs> and and there certainly are routines that he did that were very smart and and very evocative, but that are arguably not all that funny. So like such a law saying it has to be funny first, um you know, wouldn't even necessarily live up to the. Uh, uh, so to the so in Lenny other words, Bruce. if you accept his argument, he's a libertarian.
0: Anyone can claim to be Lenny Bruce because nobody knows who's funny or not, and you can make jokes about anything, dead babies. Gas chambers, slavery doesn't really
1: matter. Is, is it really that shocking to say that I think you can make jokes about anything? No, I, I'm just yeah. I just want to get you on record. Oh yeah, well, but but here's the thing. I mean, like the one of the reasons why people don't make that argument um, is social sanction. Um, I'm sorry, don't don't make dead baby jokes very often. Is because most of us think it's disgusting, and that's the thing that I worry about, uh, particularly people on my side of the political fence we see too many answers in power, having more power to make us do good things. Uh, a lot of what society is supposed to be like is actually us calling each other out and uh, using things that don't, that don't have the compulsion or force of law, but being like, that's really gross, dude. Like, why, why would you make that argument? Like, what was your point? And which, which happens every moment of every day. So like the idea of there being an additional legal force to it, I, it, it will get abused in, in, in the name of what power already thinks. And does it
0: mean, I mean, can some, you know, can Jews, for example, make jokes about the gas chambers? Uh, uh, Joseph Borowski, the great uh, Polish uh, writer um, who was Jewish, uh, wrote a book, uh, This Way to the Gas Chambers, Ladies and Gentlemen, which was a joke on the gas chambers, but he was Jewish.
1: Can you get away with it as a Jew?
0: Or I, as I think a black? Social- can you
1: joke about slavery if you're black? I think the social norm is yeah, like if you're part of the group, you have much wider range for it to be acceptable for you to crack jokes about it, and that's that's an understandable social norm. And I mean, Key and Peel, you know, they would uh, they did a whole skit about like a, 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 about slavery. Uh, they actually did several of them that actually you know were very funny. But one of the reasons why people weren't as offended was the fact that it fits into that category of like yes, but that's that's in group, that's okay.
0: Well, Greg, a real honor to have you on. You uh, you make some very good arguments. I'd like to actually have you back if you've got time. I'd like to do a little bit more research of my own on the 50s uh, and take you up on, a, on on a more formal comparison between that period and today so you should we'll definitely you look into the lavender
1: scare because that, that's actually the one that was worse in terms of numbers of people fired than the red scare which was part of the red scare but it was the target Well, but that of, was um, uh
0: I, i'm not interested i mean i am interested in the, the red uh the lavender square uh, not the square scare but i'm i'm more interested in mccarthyism in the 50s and, and making the comparison i think it can be interesting anyway we'll try and get you back on and we'll talk more Best of luck, Greg. Real honor to have you on the show. You're very civil and very convincing. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much. Take care.